I mean, the cops would tell me, like Rivington Street, the pre the, the the percentage of getting mugged was one. I remember a cop telling me, says the odds of getting mugged down the street are a hundred percent. So he says, you could actually walk down the street and don't worry about it. Cause you definitely gonna get mugged. You know, like you walk around when you're I hope I don't get ripped off or you're looking around. Don't have to look around. Don't worry about it, bro. Cause you 100% are gonna get taken off. Welcome to the Curia Podcast. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. We're joined this week by Chief Content Officer of Curia, Garrett Weaver. We also have a very special guest who uh, you heard right at the top there. Uh, the man himself, Abel Ferrara, will be joining us because this week we're talking New York stories. We're going to be discussing some iconic, some lesser known, but all essential movies about the streets, alleyways, apartments, halls of power, parks, and hospitals of New York City. First up, it is our first episode and Curia has just launched. So Garrett, why don't you tell me and tell people who are listening just what Curia is and what we're doing here? Thanks, Ricky. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, excited to to kick this off. You know, it's our first podcast um, that we're doing since we launched. Um, yeah, what is Curia? It's a great question. You know, we, we um, as you mentioned, launched in July. So we are a niche curated uh, SVOD platform. Uh, our model's pretty unique in the sense that, you know, every month uh, we kind of launch these um, we kind of refer to them as pop-up collections. So as you mentioned, you know, we're going to focus on New York stories, um, in, in this one, but, but every month we have, um, right now it's six different, uh, pop-up collections. So each one could be anything as specific as, you know, one of them we did was, uh, you know, on best serve cold, which is, you know, all, uh, specifically revenge films, uh, or one could be, you know, we just wrapped up, uh, in August LA stories. So all films set in LA and, you know, we, we found it to be a really fun, uh, model to keep things super fresh every month. Um, you know, we're constantly changing our lineup monthly, similar to what the way like a repertory theater would. Um, but also for us, our, our main focus and our mission statement is to kind of cure what people kind of refer to as uh, browser fatigue. So, you know, we feel like you, know, you have all these major platforms. We're all subscribed to all different things and we have access to hundreds, if not thousands of, of movies. But we have no idea what to watch. And one of the things we found was really interesting was in working with some of our great partners, you know, we're able to pull only the things every month that we feel like uh, are great and high quality and something that can really help people. Hopefully our goal with it is that people can make easy, you know, more informed decisions quickly. I think that's one of the things that I really love about Curia right now is that, yeah, on other streaming platforms, things last one month or two months and then they go away. But at the same time you have to like you said you get browser fatigue you have to go through everything and oftentimes you don't know what that thing is that may only be there for a, a month or, or so where with curia it is a very tight selection it is very heavily curated and you know kind of how long you have generally to watch these uh, very well curated movies yeah there's a few things actually it's a great point you know as somebody who's in the industry somebody who's you know worked in the business for a long time and and already has um a preconceived understanding of you know filmmakers or you know um you know uh, like seeing films at film festivals like even i struggled to find out what to watch so that was one of the things i thought about i was like wow what, what about somebody who you know is jumping around and maybe doesn't have all this contextual information you know good luck right and then the second thing was um kind of the blockbuster video example like i i kind of always missed um 
the sort of, you know, there's a limited amount of time you have something. And if you don't watch it in that amount of time, um, you know, you have to give it back. But one of the things I noticed is my habits changed and I was less incentivized to watch something when I know that everything's available versus when I had something in my hands. So we're, we're really, what we're trying to do, right, is recreate some urgency and say, hey, you know, you may be somebody who wanted to watch, you know, these films we're going to talk about today, someone who might, you know, really love New York history, but here's a place where we can take a bunch of those things and put them together for a month and create some exclusivity because you're never going to be able to hold on to them forever, right? The realities of kind of licensing content today, but mm -hmm. you could get them together for a month for you and, and give it to you in a, you know, for us right now, we're running, um, you know, a 30 day free trial for all new subscribers, but also, you know, our price point is you know, $3.99 monthly. So for the price, essentially of one rental, you could, you can kind of have fun and, and, and jump around and, um, experience, you know, a whole collection of movies. I, I personally find the most fun, you know, once, once you kind of find a specific, you know, time period or a specific filmmaker or today, you know, placed, um, kind of jumping around and, and and experiencing them kind of side by side. I think you pick up on a lot of things. You know, you mentioned uh, the video store and uh, I'm a big uh, lover and I have a lot of nostalgia for video stores. It was one of my first jobs when I was a teenager. And one of the things that I always loved about um, the retail aspect of renting a video was being able to uh, check out the employee picks rack and also have conversations with those specific employees about why they pick those movies and then get their, you know, extremely passionate recommendations. Oh. Um, you know, for me, it was like, you know, getting, <laughs> being 13 and getting like reservoir dogs recommended to me <laughs> by someone that probably shouldn't have been recommending that at the time. Um, but, and I sort of like that this podcast can kind of be a, a version of that where you have selected these movies uh, with your team and, you know, you can now talk about, we can talk about why they're important and why people should give them a chance, even if maybe they're not very well, they're not the most well-known New York movie, but they do showcase an angle about it where if you are an aficionado or consider yourself one, you should see this this movie because it is a, a period in time that is well represented by this this piece of filmmaking. Garrett, I, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned also going to festivals. Yeah. Before we get into this selection of New York movies, what was your because i think people should maybe get to know you and get to know your love of movies a little bit is when sure. did you start watching movies when did you start recognizing that you had a a passion for this art yeah. form that maybe some people around other people around you didn't necessarily share my dad was a you know um avid movie watcher and we had way too many dvds um originally laser discs and uh, just then laser disc and then dvds um so i would say actually the laser disc days as a kid like seeing this massive thing and you have to like pick it up and try not to break it and put it into this big machine. And I think we had, I think I saw Terminator two before I saw Terminator one. I always find that. So did I, I was six. I saw it in the theater <laughs> yeah. with my parents. I had, no, I, I, it blew my mind when there was a one blew there, my mind. There was, there was a, a movie before that. That was, that was hard for, one for me to swallow, but you know, just watching a lot of films and, and you know, my dad was, was awesome because he was the kind of dad who would be like, no, you have to see this movie. Not like you should yeah. like, no, like it's required, you know, there was like certain films that were like requir required uh, viewing. Um, but really for me, like once I ended up going to NYU to study film, um, I didn't, I didn't, I was, just, I thought that was just like, oh wait, I can go to college and just watch movies, more movies and that's school. Like, great. Um, but it's funny you mentioned the video store example because um, Kim's, you know, shout out to Kim's video. Oh yeah. RIP. Huge for me. RIP, I know, but, but 
for me, like to your point, the whole you know video uh, clerk you know curation angle. I mean, I I probably spent more time just walking around and picking things up and putting things down in gyms, um, you know, and really engaging with with all these films and and trying to figure out what you actually want to to take with you. You know, like the 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 stress of like. I, only have, I can only afford a few or whatever, you know. For me, it really boils down to two words, uh, which I actually have tattooed on my elbow, which are just only child. I was just a latchkey kid. I played sports and had friends and stuff, but really I just loved watching movies. And I think a lot of that had to do with all the adults in my life talked about movies and it seemed like my entryway into adult conversation which from a young age I was always obsessed with kind of being an adult and being able to talk with the adults but then that just ended up leading to being obsessed with movies and I would force trips to the video store I ended up working at the video store and then when I got into um, high school and then in college there was a video there were a couple video stores in Massachusetts uh, that had you know uh, were organized by by director names um, and so I would spend all my time there and there was a movie theater called Pleasantry Theater that when I was in high school, I would be there all the time and I would harass the local employees to just sort of get them to try to talk to me about the movies that were playing. Um, I remember one guy that works there who's now like a pretty successful noise musician, um, specifically remember trying to get him to talk to me about Harmony Korine when I was Harmony Korine and Larry Clark, cause I think I had just seen Bully. Uh, and I was trying to get him to talk to me about it, that guy for a while and I, I always remembered it as him being annoyed with me but oddly I bumped into that guy as a myself a 35 year old man uh, and he was playing a show and he somehow remembered me and was the little kid that would always come in and bother him about movies and he seemed genuinely um, uh, endeared by it which was which was nice So we've got about 11 movies uh, in the New York stories section um, on Curia right now. And um, all of these movies, uh, I would say, make up the sort of back half of the 20th century in, in New York City. So we've kind of structured this conversation uh, semi-chronologically. And I say semi because um, every now and then it sort of doesn't matter when a movie came out, if it happens to tie back to a certain period of time or tie back to the heyday of a certain filmmaker operating during a certain period of time, we sort of bring them together, but still operating semi-chronologically. And I think uh, the first movie that we should start with is um, Gene Sachs' Barefoot in the Park, starring Jane Fonda, Robert Redford, and based on the Neil Simon play. Neil Simon wrote the screenplay. These footprints lead to the happiest motion picture in many, many, many a year. Officer, we just got married. Paul, if the honeymoon doesn't work out, let's not get divorced. Let's kill each other. Let's have one of the maids do it. I hear the service here is wonderful. Barefoot in the Park, the barest, rarest, unsquarest love play that ever left Broadway to find happiness on the motion picture screen. Redford and Fonda are um, at their most beautiful, maybe, in this movie, just like stunning in every shot that they're in. But also this is a very specific depiction of a... Um, 
certain time in in New York and a and a certain place in New York. Uh, and it's it's got that Neil Simon style sitcom uh, dialogue and jokes. Like you know, if there's a line, there's a joke right after it. And uh, I think it's I think it's great if people only know New York in the '60s based off of other movies from the '60s and '70s, and not uh, this style of uh, of movie, which is very warm-hearted and um, sort of fun for the whole family. <laughs> to be clear, yeah, you know, it's the funny the funny thing about this movie is that um, I saw it later in life, and I always heard about the film. I knew what the film was, but I always thought the park was Central Park, and it's actually Washington Square Park because. In the beginning of the movie, right there at the Plaza Wait, Hotel. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's kind of weird because the movie opens with at the Plaza, the Plaza, right? Iconic Central Park location. And just to preface, you know, I'm born and raised on Long Island, and, and my most of my family's from Brooklyn, and spent a lot of time in the city growing up, and then obviously went to school there and lived there. So I'm fascinated by how New York's been portrayed on film, and um, also, and we can talk about this in more specifics later, but how you know a lot of these films exist as a time capsule right for for yeah. a new York that doesn't exist and so yeah so i always thought it was central park it's actually in the end of the film right when he's you know not to spoil the film but we're going to spoil all these films um probably so hopefully people you know try not to we'll try to we'll try to keep yeah. it relatively spoiler free let's do that let's do that let's yeah. let's 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 spoiler free that's a good point because people yeah. might want to watch it. want people to watch them <laughs> but uh i guess semi spoiler alert um, Washington Square Park is featured prominently in the film. That's where the title comes from. Um, and I don't think that's a spoiler. I don't think I don't think it's like a twist at the end. It's like a M Night Shyamalan twist. Certainly not a the twist. That I mean, Washington that would Square be funny though. We told people that there was an M Night Shyamalan twist in Barefoot in the Park, and then they went to watch it and they were like, "This is not quite the, the movie I thought it would be." Um, and there's just yeah, like, like huge, like big audiences just being like, "Oh my god, yeah. it's Washington Square Park." Uh, if we could only create a Twitter trend, we'd be so lucky, right? Um, <laughs> but but yeah, no, look, I mean, one of the things that struck me when I saw the film was, you know, to be fair, at the beginning of the film, I was like, this feels very much like a film play, right? And yeah, not not super surprising because Neil Simon, but also Gene Sachs' background, you know, as a Broadway actor and, um, you know, d- directing this film. I don't know if it's his first feature, maybe it was his first feature, but... This is his, this is his first feature. Yeah, Odd Couple comes Odd after Couple this. Next, yeah. Odd couple of funny because I feel like this film starts out in a crappy um, sort of bait and switch walk up um, that people aren't happy with. And then odd couple starts out in like a dingy hotel, right? Like the Times mm-hmm. um, but then, you know, I, I just, I, I was very struck by that in seeing it. Cause I had this very, I don't know. I, I, had, I had a preconception. that's going to be like a very like light and fun, romantic, you know, calm, but it's, it's really not. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting take on on you know sort of the, the romantic comedy supposed to speak because it, it is a bit of of a curveball when you kind of see the 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 yeah sure it's a comedy but but you know this couple who kind of hits that phase right like they're they're going like the honeymoon phase ends and then they're dealing with like real life problems in a real way and um i just one of my favorite parts of the film though is, is charles boyer um and the victor velasco character i think it's such an amazing character and gives the movie so much life um and uh yeah no i i i this is a this is a super fun film and and just an like again like an icon an iconic film uh because of redford and fonda but also interesting to kind of you know think about um 
you know, like the, their careers. I think I don't know if I was reading this, but he was he like quit acting before uh, doing this film. Before this movie? Yeah, like apparently he Redford was gonna quit acting. He was like done with it. And I can't remember who was supposed to be cast in the film, but um he um because he 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 I think he played the part on Broadway. I think he did the role on Broadway and then he didn't want to do like repeat himself. Um so he did it again. Which also, to be fair, is probably why the film also still kind of maintains its theatrical roots, right? Like you just you just literally perform this um on the stage and then and then film the version of it. Um that, that very theatrical roots. <laughs> yes. Yes. The um, the opening bit about how uh, about these six six flights of stairs is very theatrical. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean tremendous. Everybody keeps coming up these these six the six floor walk up, and by the time they get up to the top, they're having like a very theatrical like heart, out of breath heart attack from the, from the walk. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, like they had to exaggerate that in, um, and we got to fact check me because I might just say things that aren't even fundamentally true but but i think this is true um as long as you think it's true i think it's true um (laughs) uh, but but um i think in one of the european releases i don't know if it was the the french release or something they had to exaggerate um how high it was because like a walk-up is more common in europe than it was in you know i mean that was that was my problem during that during that sequence is i kept being kind of like it's only six flights guys what are we talking oh, about right now? Like it, it, that six flight sucks, but it's not, it's not this. <laughs> it's not like, also, it's like, not going to kill you. And, and this is kind of why I find this collection fun because if, if anybody's ever lived in New York or spent time in New York, it's like seeing how people deal with, you know, sort of the, the trials and tribulations of living in New York. Like there are such wildly different depictions of what it means to be yeah. in New York in all these movies. And this is, <laughs> I would definitely say, one of the uh, you know the more the more the more comfortable um, portrayals, bougie. The, the bougie. Yeah, this is like in the bougie section. Um, right. I also love. Um, I kind of love like charting uh, the 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 cost of rent um, throughout the history of, of film in New York. So I think they lie and they say it was like seventy five cents that they were paying to the mom, and <laughs> it's a shockingly low amount of money. Um, and the like that, no one should be complaining if they're spending 75 cents a month on rent like even if they actually were spending a few dollars um even if they were spending 75 cents a day <laughs> it's just i mean and we'll see we'll we'll i made a note but we'll see even not even 10 years later how the price uh price increases um I, I will say like as much as as much as i liked barefoot in the park i did i do find it hard to watch jane fonda and robert redford play like goofy or or confused or anything other than smoldering right like (laughs) (laughs) there are moments in the movie where they're like like oh i don't know what to do and they seem baffled and it's like you don't need to be baffled the world would bow to you like you're fine everything you do you will be fine you're the two of you are so hot like it's okay you're gonna be okay guys uh, our other film from the 1960s is a film called The Queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a documentary directed by Frank Simon, and it's a, uh, a verite-style portrait of uh, a group of men getting ready to perform uh, at the drag all-American camp beauty pageant. He said to me, you are a woman, aren't you? I said, no. I said, I'm one of the contestants in the contest. He goes, oh. 
Let's open up the curtain and take a look at our beauties. Let's hear it for them. I feel awfully sorry for the judges tonight. And uh, I love this this documentary. It's a pretty short documentary, and it's an incredible time capsule of a period of time that was rarely captured uh, at this period of time. I don't, you know, we often don't think of drag shows or think of drag queens or, or balls until something like Paris is Burning was released. Obviously, they existed before that, but in terms of documentation, Paris is Burning is often kind of cited as the, the mm-hmm. first, most innovative one. But the queen um, is... Uh, I believe 1968, uh, and that is to me. It feels kind of like the first. I think one of the big differences is that it's a. Uh, it just has a different style than 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 Paris is Burning does, but it's beautiful. Yeah. And there's these incredible moments with these guys singing and their freedom with each other, and they're all kind of like, but they're also really bitchy too at times, which is so great to see these guys and like at this period of time, like being still being bitchy. <laughs> It's really interesting because um, I saw Paris is Burning probably like most before this film. Um, and that's a film that um, I remember I, I actually saw it in, in, in school and college and um, was blown away. I mean, it's like most people who see the film. Um, it, it's such an incredible piece. But I think the way to think about this is right is, is whereas that kind of focuses on the shows and the characters themselves, this is a bit more of a behind the scenes of like that painstaking process that goes on to create these shows, but also the, the politics behind the scenes to, to get these things made and not in a small way. Right. I mean, you're talking about, I think it's a perfect example of a film that requires a bit of context historically to really appreciate it. Uh, what's going on. I mean, you know, drag and, and homosexuality is illegal in New York state at the mm-hmm. time. Right. So, you know, kind of why the film kind of has that sort of backroom, um, you know, feel in a lot of ways is, is because of what was happening and, you know, to think about, um, you know, kind of, it's the pre-Stonewall era, right? So Stonewall's in, yep. in 1969. The other thing I thought about in this film, which is really interesting, is it kind of feels like a Frederick Weissman documentary, but yeah. um, Frederick Weissman didn't actually show um, Titicot Follies, his first film, until after. So it's really interesting to see, you know, um, you know, Frank Simon working um, in in that way around the same time that, that Weissman was. Well- it's the technological advances with cameras, right? That allowed them to sort of start making these films. The same reason that Breathless was a, a, able to be made the way that it was made. It was just a smaller cameras that people could, that filmmakers could really walk around and document with. And one of the things that I love about The Queen is that you really kind of have to lean into the movie in the same way that you do a Frederick we- a, a Weissman movie, in the sense that the movie's not sort of telling you what to look at and it's not uh, telling you really like, almost like who's talking at times because it's trying to capture all these people talking at the yeah. same time. So you really have to pay attention and, and, and lean in. And if you do, you're very well rewarded for it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a, a really great quote. Um, Richard Brody did a piece in the New Yorker. Um, and he talks about how, you know, despite legal sanctions against homosexuals, the practice of the pageant was deeply integrated into the city's administrative, legal and economic order the police officer who calmly maintains order backstage to the hotels and other businesses that profit from the pageant's presence to town hall itself, which is rented out to the production. The pageant suggests an official tolerance of queer life that was in fact unofficial, tenuous, and ultimately, ultimately illusory. Um, super interesting when we kind of take this into the context of 
some later films, right? And in terms of like, you know, the moral ambiguity of of New York City and its and its police department, and you know, ultimately its relationship with crime, you know, syndicated or, or otherwise. Um, you know, it's wild to watch a movie like this and, and actually think of it in a weird way as a crime film. You know, it's yeah, it's, it's really, and that's why I say like context for for because this is a it's a short film. It's an hour and six minutes, 66 minutes. And anybody who's seen Paris is Burning, just I think this would be something that would really, really um, be enjoyable for someone who enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I think if you enjoyed Paris is Burning, uh, the Queen is kind of the central viewing. Yes. And it's interesting. Yeah. I never thought of it, uh, thinking about it as a crime film because they are all engaging in something underground um, and, and illegal at the time. It, you know, you watch the film and you don't recognize, it's hard to almost recognize that they're doing something dangerous because we're at, we're at this point so used to drag race, right? It's, it's mainstream, it's pop culture, but at the time, yeah, it was, it was illegal. And so I think you can watch the movie from this angle. It's like, oh, look at these men having fun. They can't wait. But actually the reason that they're all crammed into one hotel room is because they're kind of hiding while they're doing it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, it is another, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's an, there's another sort of point that I'd like to highlight in a conversation that I think is also important when we talk about um, how we curate movies in general, right? There's a lot of talk and we've had a lot of talks obviously as a company, but um, I've heard this discussion in various places about, you know, you know, why should certain films be presented certain ways or, or who's to say certain films have, you know, contextual, um, you know, relevance over another. And this is a good example because I think, you know, you could obviously program this film as an LGBTQ or something in, in a pride collection, right? That would make sense. But, um, but I also think that in the context of, of New York city and, and the history of, of films in New York, um, it's also, equally as important in some ways, right? Because it does fit into that narrative. And, you know, one of the things we are trying to do, and, and certainly we haven't cracked this, and, and um, I think everybody can can push the boundaries a little bit on this, is like, how do you start to create, you know, different sort of, you know, like angles of curation where you're presenting things in different ways, in interesting ways, right? And you're not just saying, um, like here's a horror film or here's a crime film and it's getting a little deeper and, and digging into it and engaging with it more and thinking about, you know, there's a lot of connective tissue that overlaps, but um, sometimes you can find, you know, interesting parallels and things that wouldn't normally be placed, you know, next to each other. Um, and, and, you know, that's definitely something that we, we try to think about is how can we, you know, find different angles um, to present these films and not just kind of like lean into a, a traditional way of just, you know, um, categorizing something and i think you know you can't really talk about new york movies in the latter half back half of the 20th century or at least you can't talk about new york movies in the 70s 80s and 90s really the 70s 80s early 90s without talking about uh woody allen and two of the films for the 70s that uh you guys have have chosen are uh Annie Hall. A relationship, I think, is, is like a shark. You know, it has to constantly move forward or it dies. And I think what we got on our hands <clears throat> is a dead shark. Woody Allen. I love what you're wearing. Oh, you do? Yeah. 
Oh, well, it's, uh, this is, a uh, this ties a present from Grammy Hall. Who? Grammy? Grammy Hall? Yeah, my Grammy. <laughs> what are you kidding? What did you do, grow up in a Norman Rockwell painting? Diane Keaton. You don't want me to live with you. How, how, I don't want you to live with me. How, whose idea was it? It's mine. Yeah. It was yours, actually, but uh, <clears throat> I approved it immediately. Which I think for many is his kind of, his masterpiece. Um, and then uh, Manhattan. Chapter one. He adored New York City. He idolized it all out of proportion. Uh, no, make that, he, he romanticized it all out of proportion. Better. Which to him, no matter what the season shots, was, this was still uh, a town that existed in black ever, and white. Uh, ever put on film. And we chose to sort of pair this in the podcast with Edward Ed Burns's. Is it Ed Burns or Edward Burns? I don't know. I, I like I to think just, someone in his life somebody calls him Eddie, calls him Eddie he's Burns. Got a, he's got an Eddie style vibe with his whole voice, you know? Um, Eddie Burns's uh, 2001 film, Sidewalks of New York, which is actually shot. Uh, like a, a a mockumentary or like a documentary crew is filming all these people talk about their relationships and love, which is a direct reference to uh, Alan's husband and wives. Tommy is dating Maria. I cannot imagine my sixth grade teacher going out on dates, getting drunk, taking guys home. Why? I don't know, maybe because she was a nun? <laughs> Who's divorced from Benjamin. I have gained 15 pounds since the divorce. Oh, 15. Okay? Yes. Now, I think we should consider getting back together, if for no other reason than my health. Who's stuck on Ashley. I'm really a savage. I know enough savages already. Yeah, yeah, but I'm a savage with a very sweet side. Who's just met Griffin. I'm sorry, is this your father? No, this is uh, Griffin, my dentist. How, how did you end up with this guy that you're with, anyway? Well, I was just sitting in the park one day by school. Are you a model? Who's married to Annie? Ooh, flowers. What's the occasion? Well, I need an occasion to buy flowers for my wife. Usually. Who's perfect for Tommy? So, are you from New York originally? Yeah, yeah, Queens. Well, that's not really New York, is it? Confused? What do you think? Um, no. Yes and no. So are they. Did I screw it up somehow? Is everything all right? Is there something wrong? If there's something wrong, you, you should talk to me. I would say the big difference between husbands and wives and sidewalks of New York is that Alan and husbands and wives doesn't feel the need to establish that there's a documentary crew, like just throws out abstractly, why not have your characters talk directly to the camera? Burns at, feels the need to establish that there's a crew. and But at the same time, it's all these conversations about love. It's all these conversations about New York. It is mainly between interviews, it is a series of walk and talks. And for me, there was no one better at the sort of New York comedic romantic walk and talk than uh, than Woody Allen. And I think you see that especially in Annie Hall and in and in Manhattan. Um, I remember when I first saw Annie Hall. There's the shot of Woody Allen and um, the character actor whose name I can't remember who plays his former writing partner that's more successful, and they're walking down the street, and it's a long one take and and um alvi woody allen's character is saying no he looked directly at me and he said did you more have this not you more not, not did you ha have more but did you have more and the guy's like you're paranoid you're paranoid but it's this long walk and talk down the sidewalk and i feel like 
sidewalks of new york by eddie burns is really just like watching that and then husbands and wives and being like let's put these two things together <laughs> that makes a lot of, i mean i think that's that's correct in in many ways and and you know i think even even to look at kind of um in sidewalks you know um heather grant's character annie right i mean her name is annie um also her appearance you know she's got the uh sort of early diane keaton um you know glasses yale, yale crew sweatshirt type of deal um obvious uh you know homage or, or or influence there um but yeah look i mean right it's like it's like if you didn't get it this is a this is an homage to woody allen <laughs> get it yeah but yeah to eddie burns's credit um uh, you know i i really like um sidewalks in new york because um i do think a, a lot of a lot of the conversations and and it's such a good question i don't know if like some of it was improvised or if it was you know scripted it feels improvised in a lot of ways it's just like I just love that moment um, where he's walking in the kind of empty space with, with Annie, with Heather Graham. And he's just like, mm -hmm. no, like I'm a real New Yorker. Cause like real New Yorkers live outside of the city. You know, it's like, you know, the outer boroughs that made up like, you know, like my you know family, like, it's like how much death did you, did you incur uh, in the building of the city? Like, you know, like, well, my family built tunnels and some were police officers. I got shot. I was like, that's the badge of honor. And then, you know, it's the her. blue collar. It's the blue collar yeah. badge, right? The outer boroughs are the ones who work in social services and public services, yeah. and the the inner boroughs are, are 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 the wealthy elites who, you know, run the financial sector. Is basically it's like his argument. I just that's I love that scene, and and there's there's a lot yeah. of great moments in the movie, but it does it does feel authentic. I don't want to I don't want to you know be reductive and say that he's you know ripping off because I have seen I think there are some reviews that say you know it's Woody Allen light, and I would I would actually challenge people to rewatch sidewalks and then rewatch some of you know er, Woody's early work and be like you know in in, in in no way or more or less than Woody you know kind of at his Bergman you know connections so yeah uh, I don't really understand uh ripping getting upset with a filmmaker because they're very clearly riffing on a filmmaker that especially a filmmaker love. who very clearly riffs on other filmmakers yeah like go ahead have at it do something do something yeah. great it's it what like it doesn't pe musicians do songs all the time that they say oh yeah this is supposed to be like this this artist or this musician and oftentimes you you can hear it i mean scorsese often makes not often but sometimes makes movies that are very clear riffs on filmmakers that he loves you know spike lee does as well when you're talking about the history of new york city on film and in the specific context, you know, it is hard to to not discuss um, these movies. They're 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 definitely part of the history and the way it's presented. I mean, I, I think for for Manhattan, um, definitely um, in, in terms of Gordon Willis' cinematography, you know, it's 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 so iconic in in, in a visual sense. I mean, the the, the widescreen black and white, um, you know, the the Gershwin soundtrack. I mean, it's. It, it it's a romanticized version of New York um, that is, in no other words, iconic. However, the thing that returning to the film that I that I kind of ask myself and would love to hear your thoughts is, you know, is this a love letter to New York or is this kind of a cynical um, kind of attempt to convince oneself that they love New York? Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I think he states that right at the beginning of the movie where he says he, he loved New York. And then he says, no, he romanticized New York, 
right? Like he kind of states very early on that this is a romantic fantasy. And then instead his life in New York is plagued by all this neurosis and not being able to choose <laughs> like, the right life for himself and then being let down. His view of, of New York um, is, you know, for good and bad tied to, you know, the way people have viewed New York. Like most people have probably um, made, uh, there probably is a perception of New York and New Yorkers because of a lot of his work. Right. And it is a bit of that, you know, um, middle-aged ennui kind of, you know, everyone's at art galleries and everyone's in, you know, having relationship issues and everyone's an artist, you know, it's like a lot of that does come from his stuff because if you look at kind of a lot of these other films that are taking place in, in similar time periods, there's, there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So I always find that really interesting. It's like how many people's perception of the city came through some of his early work. Um, probably yeah. a lot. I think a lot. And Annie Hall, of course, is um, one of the great breakup movies. Uh, I would say that and High Fidelity are some, yeah. uh, two of the best breakup movies. But Annie Hall also has the great Marshall McLuhan scene where um, he, he to someone's pontificating about Marshall McLuhan in, uh, in a, the line for a movie theater. And uh, he's wrong. And Alvy gets really upset because he's wrong. And he says, God, I wish I had Marshall McLuhan here to tell this guy and he pulls McLuhan out. Um, it's just an iconic moment in a Woody Allen movie. And also one of these things about that he did so well for a period of time, which was set up that the movie was one thing and then constantly be able to break form, you know, not necessarily just by talking to the camera, but by doing a scene like that, you know, if you want, he, he was so good at luring you into what you thought the movie was going to be. And then being able to go off on any kind of tangent that 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 he wanted to do you know there are moments where in the middle of the movie woody allen and diane keaton go into their memories and watch each other in a scene and and, and talk about it which is really innovative for a movie like this at the time and the other thing about annie hall is one of the sort of pieces of trivia about it is that it was supposed to be a completely different movie and then he reshot it to become mm -hmm what it was it was yeah, supposed to be like a murder i think it was supposed to be manhattan murder mystery basically oh, and it didn't work and then he reshot it i remember reading that the title was something like not completely different but very different than annie hall like something that yeah sounded similar but um yeah and just you know because i love a callback um you know annie's uh rent in the movie was four hundred dollars a month in oh so we're already right. seeing inflation here, right? So we're seeing so in so in about like fourteen years, thirteen years, we've gone from maybe like eleven years, tw what twelve years, something like that. We've gone seventy five cents to four hundred dollars, huh? Um, I was I was looking at something that just said that uh, four hundred dollars in nineteen seventy five translates to eighteen hundred dollars in two thousand nineteen. Um, oh, I guess. Uh, and and what does she have? Like a one bedroom apartment in the on the west in the West Village or the Upper West Side? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little that's a little cheap for right now, I think. You no, know, Ebert actually wrote, um, I think in his review, he said Sidewalks New York lives at the intersection of Woody Allen and Sex in the City. And it's funny because it's hard to not think about like that film at that time period, because in a lot of ways, there's like pre Sex in the City, New York, and then post Sex in the City, New York. I mean, the show is just so influential um, in people's perception of New York. And it's interesting when you think about it in the context of like you have Woody um and kind of the, the perception that he gave um from from obviously like a like a, like a a male point of view but then the sex in the city point of view as well 
and you start to kind of see the makeups of like all these stereotypes building, right? Like <laughs> it's like you can kind of create that chart of like all the different things that people from the outside probably think New Yorkers do all day. Jumping ahead about um, 10 years, um, we have, um, or not 10 years from Eddie Burns, but 10 years from uh, Manhattan. Hmm. Um, we have Charles Lane's uh, sidewalk stories from uh, shot in 1989, I believe released in 1990. Um, and it's a silent film, mostly silent film that takes place o- o- around the Lower East Side, which I think is so cool because it it's really feels like a 1980s Lower East Side, which is, uh, I feel like always filmically when people talk about that time they talk about the no wave movement and jim jarmusch and richard kern and people like that and that's and and you know there was a feminist sect within the no wave movement lizzie borden catherine bigelow is in it but there was rarely people of color are talked about in regards to making films around that area at that time and it's so cool to highlight and to to spotlight this film because i don't think a lot of people have heard of it or know about it and it is a a beautiful document um of of this area and the fact that it's a silent film and an homage to charlie chaplin's the kid and honestly charles lane only directed one movie afterwards and then he acted in mario van peebles's posse and then we haven't he hasn't been in anything since 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 then so in so many ways it's a it's a document of a person and 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 a period of time and it's also just beautiful and 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 fun to watch uh, someone trying to make a silent movie at this period of time Yeah, this movie's a special one because um, I think if you were to pull 10 people off the street and ask them if they've seen Sidewalk Stories, I think you'd get zero. Um, it's, yeah. it's a movie that really was kind of forgotten by time. I think it maybe premiered on PBS or was broadcast PBS. And, yeah, and it was. I struggled to find um, you know distribution on, on home video. Um, if you watch this film, um, one, it's very interesting if you watch it kind of side by side with Manhattan, because both are, are black and white, you know, film, um, you know, kind of renderings on film of New York city, but a very different New York city. Right. And to your point, mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of Woody's New York. And then you have kind of from the perspective of, of, you know, a homeless person, you know, uh, on, on the streets of, of the village or Lower East side. And, 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 you know, um, the, the, the Charlie Chaplin connection is obvious. Um, even for people who probably haven't even seen a Charlie Chaplin film for the kid because right. of the solid connection and just the physical, um, the physical comedy, but also the physical performances. But um, it is a beautiful film. It is a time capsule of a New York city that absolutely people should, should see. And, and I mean, I would love to see the, I've never seen the film, the big screen, but I'm sure it looks amazing. And, you know, it, it, it when you peel the onion back on this film, it's really interesting, right? Cause, cause it, there's that sort of, um tableau that they kind of always return to of the of the um you know artists on the side of the street and there's that banner right that says preserve the greenwich village waterfront port it has all that um kind of uh uh um all all the writing about like keep the piers no towers and this is such an important um topic and issue in the history of new york city and I almost feel like I need to call my dad right now and get him on the, because 
this is something I heard about growing up a ton because, you know, my family's from Brooklyn and, you know, that waterfront property um, was some of the last property. I mean, you live in Brooklyn, right? No? Mm-hmm. I live in uh, Crown Heights. Got it. And, and I'm sure you've heard, like, it's one of the last plots of land to really be developed. And obviously, you know, the, the politics behind it um, are, are, are well documented. But in this film, right, you're, you're talking about a, a time period where, you know, there was still this significant movement to preserve what was there. And I find it, you know, kind of ironic when you watch a movie because it, you know, a lot of it wasn't. So <laughs> to watch the movie and see kind of, you know, what used to be, um, which is no longer there in a way, it's kind of like the battle lost. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, I, I, I do think that, you know, if, if, if you think about um, kind of Charles Lane example, I mean, it's, it's, it is kind of a sad story in some sense, because, you know, it's something we've heard many times, right? Someone who makes a film, um, I think the movie was, you know, at Cannes, uh, Sidewalk Stories, and it was, um, you know, standing ovation. And then um, I think if it's correct that Disney wanted to remake the film with Tom Hanks and they offered it to him. Um, and <laughs> no. Yeah, it's crazy to think. I can't imagine what. Um, in they a way, offered I, it to Tom Hanks? Or well, they offered it to... Offered it to Charles Lane and he said no. I think that's that's the story, so to speak. Um, we'll have to find out if that's... You know, oftentimes you hear that, you read that, and you're like, was that actually how it went down? Um, but he, nonetheless, I mean, there was significant interest I mean, the film, I mean, it kind of, in a lot of ways, reminds me, I mean, maybe this isn't the best example without knowing more, but like the artist, right? Like when the artist was out, um, everybody was like, holy crap, you know, like this, this is not only does it win, you know, best picture, it, it, it also, you know, felt like it was going to catapult the careers of its star and filmmaker, but also at the same time, like, it's a very specific piece of work, right? It doesn't, you know, how many how many uh, uh, silent films would you make after that? So, um, yeah, I just uh, – Charles Lane's such an interesting piece of, of cinematic history because there's so little known uh, about his career. But I think this film, um, you know, obviously stands on its own as as as, as a really great, you know um, – I don't even want to say silent film. It's just it, – it's a really kind of moving portrait. Um, and the socioeconomic component of it too I think is, is really fascinating. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, we separated, we separated this from our next three movies, although it was made and generally takes place around the same time, uh, as the, as our next three movies. Uh, but we separated because our next three movies are, I think are so specific to the creators and the type of movies that they make. And, um, the first one is, uh, hard for me to even talk about this movie. It's just one of my favorite movies. Uh, I fanboy out about it and it's Abel Ferrara's 1990 masterpiece. Uh, I think for a lot of people, they think it's his apex. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Uh, He's made a lot of great work afterwards uh, and it's King of New York. And with this one, we're doing something a little bit different. We actually had the chance to uh, zoom with the man himself, Abel Ferrara and conduct a pretty extensive interview with him uh, about the film. So uh, why listen to us talk about it? when you can listen to uh, the author himself. Frank White is a free man. How come you never came to see me? Who wanted to see you in a cage, man? He served his time. 
What can we expect from the reformed Frank White? I want to be mayor. He paid his debt. Go someplace where you can stay out of trouble. But some things don't change. King in New York is, you know, it's a fable. It's like a, you know, it's like a Marvel comic version of, uh, you know, the reality of the street, you know. That was pretty much John Gotti time, you know. I mean, it was mm -hmm. like, I mean, you know, like a superstar mobster, you know, who was... I mean, as much in the press as movie stars, you know, like that kind of thing. You know, they were pretty much rolling with no, um, you know, with no one, you know, the police, there was really no, you know, before Giuliani, there wasn't any kind of intense crackdown on the mob. I mean, it was a, um, they were just basically accepted. They were there, everybody rolled with them. And then, they like lowered the fucking boom. Like it, yeah. the city would either go totally welfare with Dinkins or the other guy came in and it was all um, quality of life, the broken window policy or, yeah. you know, straight up fascism. You know, it's like yeah. fascism. You know, hey, I stopped you. You stopped on, a, you know, stop and frisk all this shit, you know. And, you know, it's like what it is, you know. And, also, it's a playground for every fucking hustling, thieving, motherfucking billionaire in the world, you know? So you break a window or you jump a turnstile, you go to jail. You rip somebody off for $50 million on Wall Street, you know, you get into page six as, as, as a cool, you know, hedge fund uh, operative, or maybe you get to you know, financed movies or, you know, I lived in Union Square, 19, when I lived there, 1966, uh, 76, 77, Union Square, you would never even think to go into that place. Because, you know, Union Square is the place where every, all the subways from every fucking desperate fucking neighborhood come together. And at night, I mean, I mean, the place was full of Doberman pinchers, which don't exist anymore. Drug dealers, you know, you hear gunshots. I mean, you'd, if it was five degrees out, you'd still walk eight blocks out of your way. I mean, there was no way you're going to walk through that fucking park. Wait, so, Abel, um, I'm, I'm, Abel, I'm sorry. I'm curious. Are you is Doberman Pinscher a euphemism of some kind, or do you mean literal Doberman Pinscher dogs? Yeah, Doberman Pinschers, because there was a, now they're all pit bulls. But back at the time, right. they were all okay. Doberman Pinschers. But that's what I love about New York. <laughs> all the fucking evil dogs were Dobermans. All the, you know, attack dogs, all the protection dogs, right? Then one day, I never saw another Doberman pincher in my life. There were none left. And then all of a sudden, everywhere I looked, there's pit bulls. Now, then, now they're getting pit bulls in, 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 in Rome. You got to see this shit. So, you know, getting back to um, Giuliani, you know, okay, so you could have this enclave called Manhattan. And God forbid, like, what's the worst thing you could do is rip off a tourist. And now you got surveillance cameras and all these cops and it's, you know what I mean? And, you know, money's money and the whole city after 9-11 is gone to be towards big money. And because it's, there's no crime if it's white collar, it's not a crime. It's only a crime if you rip somebody, you know what I mean? If you're trying to survive on a street, okay? You're gonna bust a kid for a gun, how the fuck is he going to protect himself in that neighborhood? 
Okay, yeah, I get the point. Stop and frisk, most of the times they come up with a weapon. How the fuck are these guys are gonna fucking, you know, defend themselves in a street with no weapons? You know what I mean? I mean, it's 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 it still is a nightmare, you know what I mean? Rikers Island is a nightmare. We went there to shoot, forget it. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a nightmare. I don't, you know, my city. Well, I have another question about that in regards to Frank. You know, he's a he wants to be a private investor in a South Bronx hospital that's about to shut down. And this is well, he felt- says he says he wants to. Right. So that's my question is how sincere he says do you think, he wants to. How sincere do you think his intentions are or how much of he, how much is he just another rich guy who's scheming for power in, in the city? Well, I think the way Walken played it with a lot of commitment, I think he played that like he's really going to do it. You know, but- I mean, the Frank that that Chris is playing which is the Frank that exists. Mm-hmm. I think that's, he's on the side of, they're actually going to go for it. Right. He's going to build that hospital. It's well-documented that, you know, Biggie kind of used the moniker Frank White, and there's a lot of connections. And, yeah. and the film has this incredible lasting um, kind of presence in the hip hop community. And like, where did that kind of start, whether for you or why do you think that, you know, will kind of always live on, it seems, in the hip-hop community, the film having such an iconic place. I, you know, it's just a testament to the, to, to the you know, the work we did, the people who were working on it, you know. You know, Nikki St. John, the writer, who's an Italian guy living in the suburbs, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, who has about as much connection to the hip-hop community as the man in the fucking moon. <laughs> but actually, his spirit and yeah. his, you know, his, you know, his poetry... And his art, art, you know, nails it, you know. And then, you know, you school, you bring Schooley in, who's a fucking, you know, for him, you know, I mean, he's a great poet. He's a great rap, no rap, whatever. Same thing with Biggie, you know. These guys are brilliant poets, like, you know, Walt Whitman, fucking, you know, Robert, Fro- you know, these guys are great American poets. So, right. you know, once you start bringing that by, and Fishburne is a poet in his own way, and all those guys were right on walking is what he is you know you know again it's a fable of uh a hundred dollar bottle champagne you know the fucking lingerie the plaza hotel the fucking limos the you know what i mean the fucking matching weapons the you know what i mean the gold tea you know everything that's like you want biggie yeah you know it's one of these things and then then you think that these kids they're watching these movies when they're kids you know and what is this? What they're watching? I mean, what are we actually laying on everybody? You know, it's actually sad to think Biggie got. You know, listen, the death of a poet is always a tragedy. But you know, blowing that kid away at that age, and then knowing he's checked in that night to his hotel as Frank White, that don't make me feel good. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I, hey, it's you know, I'm not responsible, but you know, I don't. There's something, I don't know, something there, you dig? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, uh, maybe this is a heavy question, do you have regrets about King of New York or about the sort of, for lack of a better word, more exploitation fare that you produced from the beginning no, to I mean, around? Yeah, yeah, I got no regret. You know, I got no regret in my, you know, my life. I mean, I ain't making, you know, I'm not doing that now, but, you know, it's where we were at, you know, I yeah. mean, we were the same thing. We we're ambitious. We were, you know, what were you saying? 
you know, we wanted we wanted that. I mean, I think that's what they feel when you're talking about why it's iconic because we wanted it as bad. We wanted it bad. We wanted all that, you know, the chicks, the clothes, the cars, the thing, you know, we're angry, we're pissed off. You know, we're basically from the other side of tracks too. So, you know, you know, we bought that attitude. We're Italians too. You know, my father was a fucking gangster. So, you know, where John Gotti's coming from, because though that's his quote. That's from Gotti when he's out on the on the on the you know, when he's out on the balcony saying, just give me six months. You know, he knew what the fucking deal was gonna be. You know, you don't take a gig like he takes and you don't know why you're taking it. Hmm. You know, you you're being martyred. Anybody at that point who's gonna be the head of the fucking, you know what I mean? Italian fucking wise guys, that's a martyrdom. Trump gave you guys permission to shoot in the plaza if yeah. you had a photo. That's pretty the- fucking funny, right? No, no, they were um, down alone. They owned the plaza, right? So no one could shoot at the plaza, right? That was the deal. But it was like the perfect shot. I knew the plaza, so I knew it was the perfect shot. So you say, no, no one could shoot at the plaza because um, he's not letting nobody shoot in the plaza, you know, just to be a dick, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, Okay, so we get the deal like this. Please go there. I don't give a shit. Blah blah blah. Now we're making calls, hustling. You know, I'm from the. You know, I'm from New York, bro. No, I'm not gonna take no for an answer. I want that fucking place. You know what I mean? Okay, the interiors we couldn't shoot, but we wanted that big shot where they pull up. You see it. You see inside. You see all that. I mean, that's a one in a million shot. Okay, and I don't want to fake it someplace. You dig? And the more you can't shoot it, the more I'm saying fuck you. You know, now I got money. And I'm the, you know, I'm gonna do the fuck I want too, right? So we get this word that Ivanka is like, you know, Chris is her favorite fucking actor. And if he poses for a picture with her, we could get to use the plaza for 5,000 an hour, which was a lot of fucking money. You know, more than you, I, would, I wouldn't pay no, nobody five grand an hour, but we took the deal, you think? I'll tell you a funny story, what do you have a funny story? Um, so Boyan Bazelli is like this great DP. Like now he's like, you know, he, he had just come from Yugoslavia at the time, right? He had gone to the Czech film school. He had done China Girl, but, you know, he was, you know, he was young still. Now he does, you know, all kinds of gigantic movies, okay? And he's a great, great DP. So we go to Scout and we go into this restaurant and the guy at the door says, I had a sports jacket. I, you know, I may just have a, happen to have a sports jacket on. Boyan had his leather jacket on. And the guy says, you can't come in here. Boyan was aggressive, dude. He's going, what do you mean I can't come in here? He says, nobody's allowed here without sport jackets. And I'm going, ah, oh, but it's a movie, blah, blah, blah. And you know, they wouldn't listen. And then Boyan points to a guy. You could see, just see the back of him, sitting there with like a um, letterman's jacket. You dig what I'm saying? Like, you know, he's pointing to the guy saying, that got mother. Hey, look, that dude's in there. They had to get a jacket. I look inside. It was Mickey Mantle. Fuck, right? Mickey Mantle. And I'm going to Boyan, who don't know Mickey Mantle from Jesus Christ. He's going, they're letting that guy in there with that. I said, they're letting that guy. That's fucking Mickey Mantle, dude. Are you crazy? I never seen Mickey, you know, outside of the stadium. Right? I'm saying, that's fucking Mickey Mantle is sitting there. You know, he's sitting there like looking good, man, with the chicks and 
this jacket on, you know, they weren't busting him for not having a sports jacket, okay? But we didn't get in there. But anyway, so we had one hour. Blair took his time when he lit, but we got that shot, and it was a big shot. You know, the car pulls up, you see an outside, pull in, they walk in, they walk inside, get, you know what I mean? It was um, that, but, but no, I knew Donald from, you know, Donald was like, he fit right in with all those dudes, you know what I mean? Back then, 19, I don't know when, when 1990, 19. If you have told me Donald Trump was gonna run, be the president of the United States in 1992, after he like, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody that went bankrupt running a casino. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you gotta really like, I don't know, man. I wouldn't put that guy in charge of the country. Come by the Plaza Hotel. I got work for you. As for Frank White. Nobody could do shit like Chris, you know, he's just, and the first day I never, you know, it wasn't like we did a lot of rehearsal for this, bro. You know what I mean? He just shows up, you know, and um, he says to me, why don't we let the, uh, Teresa, you know, the black woman too, why don't we let, her, why don't I give her the gun and let her shoot the guy, right? This is, you know, that the already play, I think, yeah, right. Uh, I says, what? what are you talking about, man? And he says, you know, Abel, I don't really like pointing a gun at another actor. You know, the writer, I'm, I'm Nicky, you know, because he's there directing with me. It's like, oh, what did he say? He said he don't like <laughs> to me. He's got to kill like 20 fucking people in this movie. What do you mean he doesn't like pointing a gun at another actor? This is day one. Kabish, okay. So I said, I don't know how I, you know, we got around this. But anyway, so then when he finally does it, he, you know, he, you know, he pulls that, and no, I never saw that one. I mean, that was the original movie, the whole movie, that cockroach killer where he's got his hand up like that. You know, he, he yeah, because nobody could do shit like Chris. You know, he's just so he shoots a guy like fucking five times, then he shoots him after he's fucking dead, then he's walking away and he shoots him again. You know, I mean, yeah, he's he's spectacular. Was that in the script or did Walken suddenly get into it and then start shooting? No, it's not, I mean, it's, you know, it was in the script. He shot the guy. I mean, how would you, you know, who would think of all that shit? You know, just the way he shot him, you know, it's like. Even, in even the, if it's in this, whatever, even if it's in the script, what he does, how he does it is everything about him. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, he's like, you know, he's so, yeah. You talk about what it is about that movie. Just fucking take him. Okay, just well, yeah. put a little box around him, bro, and everybody else could go home. You know, it, it, it would still be a good movie. Most of people's perceptions who are not from New York came from watching movies about New York. You know, we kind of talked yeah. about kind of the 70s and obviously like Woody Allen's New York versus, you know, the New York of the 80s and some of the, the films that you made and, and right. Schrader made and Scorsese. And it's a lot for a lot of people who've never lived there. You know, that's that's what they get. Right. That's that's the stuff that they see. Um, and it's and it's not there anymore. To your point, I mean that that New York is certainly gone, uh, for better or for worse. Well, you know it's constantly changing. I mean, when going back there last month, I mean, I I got it. You know, this city is, you know, it's been changing from mm. beginning. You, you dig what I mean? And now it's yeah. really 
New so York was insane. I'm telling you, I was there for two weeks. I lucky I came back alive. I see fucking dudes punching fucking people, just walking up to them, insane people out on the street, you know, like, you know, insane people belong in the hospitals. You know, you dig what I'm saying? I'm not talking about, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like really just insane. And then everybody trying to live their life and you know, all the restaurants and the drinking is all on the street. Everybody's back to that. And, you know, I'm sober now. You know, it's another, you know, I haven't been really lived. I never lived in New York sober. So I see all this drinking and drugging. And, dude, I can't walk down this. I mean, the fucking Reaper is unreal, man. I mean, like, (laughs) I mean, come home. I mean, come home, bro. You know, the Reaper is... I mean, I'm walking through, you know, and I'm I'm like nine years sober, but I'm, t- you know, I'm holding my breath, man. I mean, this is, I smoke weed from the time I was 16 till I was 30 before we like graduated to the more, you know, you know, um, designer drugs, but I can smell the fucking weed. This is the fucking top shelf fucking ganja, bro. And everybody's sucking this shit down, and there's like a cloud of it. You dig? And everybody's got that fucking goofy look to you know. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy town, man. I'm telling you, it's always been. It's this country spends a hundred billion dollars a year on getting high, and it's not because of me. All that time I was wasting in jail. You know, it just got worse. I'm not your problem. Just the businessman. Up next, we have um, Paul Schrader's Light Sleeper from 1992 uh, as part of our Urban Decay late 80s, early 90s series, pre Giuliani, um, where Willem Dafoe plays another one of uh, Schrader's, you know, God's Lonely Men. For John Latour, a dangerous career was the most comfortable life he had ever known. Johnny, you want to have lunch with me tomorrow? One o'clock, Bob. You really think she means it this time? New Year's Eve. She had her chart done. New Year's Eve and out. No acid house, no product, no delivery. What do you do with all your money? It's not that much in the first place. It's as you know. Mary, you don't have to avoid me. I'm straight. You're dealing. We were magical. But John Latour is about to wake up and discover that everything he has is about to change. This wouldn't matter to you, but you're making a hassle. Why? What do you see? What, what is around me? I see a woman who has betrayed you. You tried to kill me. Johnny, what is this? Your beeper broke. There's danger around you. It's very close. Someone I know died tonight. This was not an accident. And uh, he's a drug, deal- a drug dealer who's a delivery guy, and he delivers high-quality narcotics to rich buyers his uh boss is susan sarandon he's delivering drugs consistently to victor garber and um a woman that he used to be involved with uh comes back into town and he sees it as a way to find redemption through her and um uh susan sarandon his his boss wants to move into the straight life and it's kind of messing with defoe's whole thing and giving him a bit of an existential crisis and just like taxi driver and just like gigolo and and just like first reformed uh we have uh defoe often sitting alone in a room writing his thoughts which we hear uh out loud um truly one of uh schrader's god's lonely men 
uh, I love this movie. It, it was a new watch for me um, about a year and a half ago and then rewatching it again before recording this. It's one of my favorite of, of Schrader's movies. And I think it's partly Defoe's performance. I, I also think it's the way New York looks. It's the music that Schrader is looking from. It's like that late 80s, early, like basically it's about to disappear by like 94 uh music the the lighting is 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 very neon consistent like and 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 bright blues throughout it and the streets of new york look very time capsule of this period of time and um yeah i i i love this film i i love schrader doing these uh these kinds of characters i think it's when he's at his best although blue collar is my favorite schrader movie and it's not that yeah and 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 i mean i i think this is probably the one in, in the original sort of, what do they say? Like the man in his room trilogy. Yeah. Um, with, you know, taxi driver, obviously American gigolo and, um, light sleeper. It's definitely the one that's the least seen. So it was just a fun one to include because, um, we kind of felt like, yeah, this isn't a movie that a lot of people have seen. Um, it's part of a trilogy that I'm sure a lot of people have at least seen one, if not, if not two. Um, and it, it's a fantastic performance from from Defoe, who's, you know, uh, rarely do you see him, you know, anything but in something. But to see him kind of in a true leading role sense at this time period in in, in his career, um, it's a really, you know, contemplative film um, about an existential crisis. And because it's Schrader, you know, there are some of this, you know, these feelings of guilt and these feelings of of, you know. Um, ultimate purpose um, and, and what's guiding you forward. Um, you know, I love Susan Rand is great in this, but I love the idea that like the conflict is, you know, um, my boss wants to go legit and start a, um, what is it like a cosmetic company? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like a cosmetics like, company. Like yeah. That's the thing that's like, Oh my God, like what a pain in the ass. Like they want to like take all their money and, you know, do something normal. Yeah, it sends him on like a down an existential <laughs> <Sorry>. spiral. <laughs> and and you know, in the movie, like this movie, I don't know, like would you say like Fever Dream is is an appropriate kind of it? It just it's a movie that does take place in like this very interesting, you know, headspace, you know, of this guy. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I think I, I think it really, you know, like he's kind of got it under control, but he's really starting to lose his shit. I think it takes place in Paul Schrader's headspace. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, that is that is considering true. that like all of these uh, man in a room, God's lonely man movies have ostensibly the same ending, um, and all yes. of which are pick are pick are pickpockets ending. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, and he's he's gotten a lot of uh, legs out of that, right? He's gotten a lot of juice. I think that. so. I mean, I love it. I love a. Uh, a filmmaker consistently riffing on himself, you know, unless it's Kevin Smith. But look, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I mean, look, I, I think, you know, ult ultimately, um, you know, pe what do people say? There's that line like, uh, everybody's basically basically making the same film over and over again. And I think that's kind of the um, criticism or line about Woody for a long time. But at the same token, like if it's good. And it's interesting, like people don't really care, right? Because it's a good movie, mm -hmm. it's a movie. And, um, you know, I, I think this is, I, I think someone, I don't know who, refer, I should find out who, who kind of coined this term, but 
it's like uh, this these series of movies is like the alienated night workers trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's funny because we'll talk about another film that's uh, you know Schrader wrote after this that is very much like the alienated, night, alienated worker. night workers. Then you know I just have a lot of appreciation for for Schrader and the way he kind of can find these sort of you know castaway sort of you know um these little forgotten um you know dwellers of the night so to speak and create these like really imaginative uh uh, worlds um you know first reformed i mean very similar in, in in some thematics but um talk about a movie that that didn't you know people didn't expect to uh to come from him at this point in his career so to see him kind of working in in a, in a, in a, at a high level against it's, 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 it's amazing. But um, I just think there's some part of the movie I just wanted to, to point out for some of the funny things in this movie. Like, you know, you have Sam Rockwell um, kind of cameo, which I found hilarious. He's looks like a baby. Um, and he plays a guy named Jell. I, I believe it's his first movie. It's his, his first, first role. movie. I mean, this wouldn't matter to you, but you make it hassle. Why? Don't you mean the papers, man? Park murder. It's all over the post. All right, Wrangle. 19-year-old barn-eyed co-ed bitch. Dead in turtle bond. Just coke the fucking gills. All of a sudden, they're hot after mid-level dealers. You know her? Yeah. Oh, now I mean, that, that's worth the price of admission alone to see. Um, Agree. Sam Rockwell and his, like, was like a rockabilly kind of um, character. And then also David Spade, like waxing poetic while doing blow and his tidy whities on his couch. Like that's David Spade playing David Spade. Correct. Correct. Where was I? All right. So if there is no God, then how can we conceive of it? You know, I mean, the idea of God presupposes the existence of God. No, that's the ontological argument. That's Anselm. That's, that's 12. Um, I actually think one of the funniest things about Light Sleeper um, is you know how, like, there's always trash. There's always a cut. Yes. There's the trash everywhere, right? Because yeah. there's a sanitation <laughs> strike. And yeah. I just love how one, like, it's so New York to, like, call that out and make that a part of the plot. Um, but another thing that I thought was really funny that I was reading about, um, about the film is apparently – even though it's set during this like sanitation strike if, if fictionally in the film, um, the actual New York city sanitation department kept taking the trash. So the, <laughs> so the production designers had to keep putting it back because they were keep getting collected because they thought it was real trash. Um, um, but also like there's, there really is a human, like, and this is maybe more of, you know, and, and feel free to, um, you know, disagree of course. I mean, but like to me, Schrader comes from this, like, there's a humanistic, you know, um, there's always this sort of conflict of crisis and, and guilt and um, a, a lot of, um, you know, there's just this, this constant grappling with, with these existential themes. And he, and he really does, even though there's violence in his films and there's drugs, you can tell there's an empathy there, like a true empathy from Schrader. Abel Ferrara, not as much for me. You think Abel's MP has doesn't have empathy? I for... think it's the difference between like Abel's sort of nihilism and Schrader, and then ultimately Scorsese's sort of like Catholic guilt. 
I think there's a big yeah. Way that I mean, I think that, and I think that you see Abel's Catholic guilt, you know, come up with uh, Bad Lieutenant, although it's still fairly nihilistic. I think also the difference is that Abel is making genre films at this time. It's not till like a film or two later that he kind of lays down the genre uh, aspect of his career and starts making out and out, almost out and out art films. Um, and so I think in that regard, King of New York feels even more nihilistic where Schrader and Scorsese are sort of allowed to breathe a little bit of um, more clear humanity and artistry into it. Oh, and it's a great point because I will say, you know, we actually have a few, um, we have, we had bad Lieutenant um, in August um, in the uh, love to hate me collection. A lot of, you know, bad guys that are, that are fun to watch um, that we did it. And, but also we have some of his more recent work um, coming up as well. Like we have Tommaso and we have, I think Tommaso is like Tommaso is probably his most personal film and is specifically about a recently, uh, a, a recently sober filmmaker who's dealing with his sobriety and, and neediness. Uh, it's a really beautiful film. I think it might be one of his, one of his best. No, and 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 that's why I appreciate you know you kind of saying that uh, about the differences in his career because I didn't want to paint that in a in a in a broad brush, but um, but there was you know earlier in his career there's you know there's a certain verve there that that uh, is unmistakable and oh I mean early in his career he's extreme like King of New York is when the artistry kind of meets the yeah. genre in the perfect sort of crescendo because before King of New York you have China Girl and you have Fear City movies that I love but I mean they are uh, specifically you know B movies they were made with money to make a B movie there's artistry within them but it's not like King of New York and then you know post King of New York uh you get something like Bad Lieutenant which is just a you know it's a it's a different vibe but even before that you know with driller killer and then he made porn he made a porno in the 70s like he's operating in 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 um grind houses and and yeah. that's that's what he came out of whereas scorsese and schrader schrader comes out of transcendental cinema and and brisson and ozu and scorsese's coming out of like john ford and yeah scorsese has his interest in some b movies but he was a never really the closest he ever got to making a b movie was boxcar bertha which he shunned um but has some beautiful elements in it but the reason that he shuns it is because he he really couldn't function on a b like sort of hitting those genre strides in, in in a b movie it was too limiting for him no, I mean it's 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 a great it's a great point and uh, probably a good segue. Um, oh yeah, next film. Our next film is 1999's Bringing Out the Dead. Schrader wrote it with Scors- for Scorsese. It's their third their third or fourth movie together. There's you have you have Taxi Driver, you have Raging Bull, you have Last Temptation of Christ, yeah, and then you have Bringing Out the Dead, where uh, Nicolas Cage plays a an ambulance driver in the early nineties movies made in 99. It takes place in 1990, 1991. Um, and he's haunted by the faces of the dead or uh, the near dead. We have a call chief. Somebody's bleeding 44th and a saving someone's life is like falling in love. You wonder if you become immortal as if you saved your own life as well. But taking credit when things go right 
doesn't work the other way. Way too seriously, Frank. You look like you aged about 10 years since the road with your last. Come on, Frank. There's blood spilling in the streets. Let's go have some fun. It was the neighborhood I grew up in and where I had worked most as a paramedic. And uh, there's a cast, a supporting, an incredible supporting cast that consists of Ving Rames, uh, my main man, Tom Sizemore. Uh, and maybe one of his greatest performances, John Goodman, Patricia yeah. Arquette, Mark Anthony, Cliff Curtis, uh, Ada Ada Totoro is uh, in it as well. It's a phenomenal movie, and it's a very underrated Scorsese movie, I think. Very underrated. Um, probably the one, I don't know the one, but it always jumps out to me at least as the one that people tend to not talk about or really – yeah you know uh include um this is a movie i saw many uh, many years ago and kind of revisited recently um i will say another new york movie where they're driving in the in the first scene again even light sleepers <laughs> i don't know what it is every movie's got to open with someone driving um but you know this is a movie that re- it is a deeply personal movie just in, in a similar way that i think you know, we're talking about Schrader and the way he's working in Light Sleeper. This this felt deeply personal. Obviously, Schrader, who wrote the screenplay for Bringing Out the Dead, um, ad- adapting the book. Um, and I just, the thing I immediately think about, and it might be obvious or it might be, you know, what have you of the time, but I, but I do think about this movie in the sort of post-pandemic New York City lens. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it really is kind of this tribute um, to these essential workers and these unsung heroes and the toll it takes. Um, on these people and the movie spends a lot of time getting you to empathize with them it does it's not it's the movie's not like jumping around and trying to you know weave this intricate plot you know it really is about you know um it's kind of visualization of 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 these people's experiences and and yes i mean like i think the, probably the thing that makes it a movie is that he's he's seeing the dead but I think you'd agree it's really not a movie about about ghosts or or seeing people coming back to life. No, it's about guilt and it's about redemption. But even in the end, when he's re- you know quote unquote redeemed, um, it's a very murky redemption. <laughs> given what he does to get redeemed, it is a very murky redemption. It almost feels like a punchline, uh, and and a, and a, and a, in, in some ways a joke. Like I think there's beauty there, but it's also like really really messed up uh how how he gets there um and the movie i think that i think people also have trouble with this movie because um it's it's scorsese operating in a different way stylistically like uh people don't i don't think people talk about this enough and i think that sounds like me trying to say i have an original thought and and i don't i just haven't seen anyone else say this anywhere but this to me feels like the most Spike Lee influenced of Scorsese's movies. I know they were friends and uh, Scorsese was initially his teacher and uh, Scorsese brought uh, Spike Lee clockers because he was supposed to do it, but he thought that Spike would be a better director for it. And if you look at the way Spike's movies are shot um, leading up to 1999, you know, from like Crooklyn on, I mean, especially really starting with clockers is you have these really like blown out white lights, these yeah. these wet streets consistently. And there's something that feels very like very in debt 
to how Spike Lee was making his movies around the I same time that this was part, being. It makes made. a lot of sense because I, I kid you not, when I was rewatching and I was thinking in my head, I was like, what visually about this is um, th- that, that obviously feels familiar, but also I'm trying to figure out what about this doesn't feel like Scorsese in some ways. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And also like part of me was thinking like it was the late nineties, which had a specific style to it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what you'd call it. I was in my head. I'm like, it's this like Y2K sort of like saturated, grainy, textured, you know, um, look. Um, yeah. And Tony Scott then exploited it yes, to like its yes, furthest end, probably. Hundred <laughs> percent. That's exactly right. And and I think that look. I mean, there is even if I think about you know like a movie like He Got Game, like mm-hmm. which is the year before Bringing Out the Dead. Yeah, and and again like very saturated, very textured. Um, you can almost taste the sweat. You know what I mean? And I mean, like it's like you're you're really. Um, it's a visceral experience, and this movie I think also is is a very visceral experience. Um, it's it's also like to Scorsese's credit, it's chaotic, but not so much that it still doesn't feel polished. You know, like <laughs> like I don't know how like he's not going to go too crazy where it's still not you know um, like still clean and still you know um, there, there there's always you know it, it's a well framed well-composed movie still but oh it is, absolutely it, it, it's it it is hard i think actually to put your finger on on some of the ways because i i, I almost feel like you know that would that would actually answer uh, you have to ask him right it's like what about this movie why is it so different and maybe it was him trying to work in kind of a different uh, a different well palette. i i think that often um he's not given enough credit for his movies being uh pretty different all around you know like they 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 don't all have the same look there's something i think because of casino and because of um and because of goodfellas it's they're often associated with a specific look and there are certain things that he does regularly you know uh fast dolly work and and you know a, a camera that doesn't really stop moving and quick paced editing and all of that stuff is really in bringing out the dead except i would say maybe the sort of very clear dolly shots or steady cams that he does yeah. but i'm i bet those are in there as well they're just less less attention is called to them in 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 the other movies but stylistically way, it is ex- it is an extremely playful movie stylistically also a calling card of spike right in a slightly different yes. way um so yeah. I think that there could be something there. You might be able to, have to investigate. Yeah. I mean, there's a possibility that, uh, cause like clockers is 95 casino is 97. And I think clockers is where I really first started seeing, uh, cinematography like this high saturation, extreme grain blown out, uh, you know, white lights, just like overexposed, um, in movies. I started, noticing it around 95 i'm sure it's somewhere before that and somebody could hear this and be like you're an idiot ricky it started here sorry um but and then scorsese starts doing it a little bit with casino which makes sense because of the um all of the all of the lights of 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 the casinos but then you really see it in this and then spike comes back with summer of sam which is even is doing it even more than bringing out the dead and summer of sam is the same year as bringing out the dead so i do feel like there's this period of time where they're kind of like almost 
influencing each other and playing off of each other a sort of like you know a revolver pet sound sergeant peppers thing going on with saturation um the other thing about we i mean this saturation conversation i another movie that came out in 99 uh similarly is uh, uh three kings which did this yeah. which did this as well totally um same thing so they're all kind of playing off each other i don't know if a new film stock was released in the in 94 or something that led to all of them uh doing this or something else was going on that uh, allowed them to play with this stuff visually um should we move on to our 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 last section sure um okay so our last section i don't think you could really do a new york series without talking about uh sydney lumet who has uh in the 20th century was you know the great chronicler of the justice system in new york from 12 angry men to dog day afternoon to serpico prince of the city q a and the movie that uh, you guys have curated uh which i think is a great choice because it's another sort of like underseen but great film not just about new york but within what we know of as Sidney Lumet's sort of wheelhouse, and that's Night Falls on Manhattan with uh, Andy Garcia, where he plays a young assistant DA assigned to a case um, that has more to it than meets the eye. And the supporting cast includes, uh, I think, what may be the last great Richard Dreyfus performance, um, Ian Holm, a pre-Sopranos Gandolfini. His films have touched our conscience and challenged our minds. Now, one of the greatest directors of our time pushes the limits again. Whose father was laying up there with tubes coming out of every hole he's got? And who put him there? Between truth and corruption. Cops from three precincts were in business with my client. Guilt. I'm saddened to announce the indictment this morning of five police officers on charges of bribery and dealing in narcotics. And innocence. If their lips are moving, they're lying. Conviction. And compromise. It wasn't supposed to happen to me. It's not supposed to happen to any of us. Andy Garcia, Richard Dreyfus. Sweat on me right here, Pop. You're clean. Night falls on Manhattan. It's an extremely underrated Lumet, in the same way that Bringing Out the Dead is an underrated Scorsese, and it should sort of be seen by any lover of New York movies or Lumet. New York movies or honestly Gandolfini movies because Gandolfini gives a pretty heartbreaking performance and we've paired it with uh, a 2014 documentary called The 7-5 which is about uh, a guy by the name of Michael Dowd who was once considered the dirtiest cop in the history of the force and uh, he kind of tells his side of the story uh, and by that I mean he tells you how corrupt he was and how he got away with being corrupt. New York is in the grips of a crime wave. It was like the heyday of crack. It was violent, man. Homicides, robberies, rapes. It was a war zone. East New York, Brooklyn, 7-5 precinct. The deadliest precinct in the country. Who did I burn to get put here? It would scare Clint Eastwood. When I first went to the precinct, I hear about this guy, Mike Dowd. Mike is just crazy. Michael Dowd was a crook who ended up wearing a cop's uniform. He was a criminal. Once in a generation, corrupt cop. I consider myself both a cop and a gangster. And I think because of Serpico and Prince of the City, Q&A, and even because of Night Falls in Manhattan, um, we it, it felt like we should pair the 7-5 with that, even though Night Falls is 96 and uh, 
uh, 7.5 it came out in 2014, but it's about the 80s, an era that Lumet uh, chronicled. And it feels like a documentary of a Sidney Lumet <laughs> movie uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. What uh, led you guys to choose Nightfalls on, uh, on Manhattan? Yeah, you know, it, it was definitely one that, I mean, I agree with you. It's, it's hard to kind of think about doing anything about New York without including Lumet. But it was a film that, you know, I, I don't think it's talked about a lot. Um, it's one that I think actually holds up quite well. Andy Garcia's performance um, at that point in his career, it's awesome. Um, just kind of, I always love kind of revisiting, you know, some, especially actors like him who, again, like I don't know how many people, younger people especially, have probably seen like an Andy Garcia lead role like this um probably know him more for either his his later you know work uh in more recent time but but this is kind of him you know kind of uh, uh at a point in his career where where you know super charismatic um and i also love the uh ian holm as his father in the film and like i almost feel like ian holm's trying to do an andy garcia accent to prove to you that he could be his dad because his accent i have I have a lot of questions about Ian Holm and James Gandolfini's relationship <laughs> in the movie. I, I don't, don't think we, I don't, we can't really give anything away. I don't want to spoil anything, but let I will say that they are partners, uh, police partners. They are detectives together in the movie. And there is something strange about their relationship. in in, in my opinion, there's definitely a closeness to their partnership as officers for sure. Yes. Um, there's also a you know a certain devastation um towards towards the later part of the film that we won't spoil um that you know maybe a traditional sort of the archetypal police partner relationship wouldn't lead the, lead there um Gandolfini man like what a performance in this one um oh yeah heartbreaking um you know sort of set piece um you know moment later in the film with him Ian Holm and and Garcia Another thing is like, you know, as we talk about like, you know, what, like why these films or, you know, um, you know, what's the merit, like, even if for somebody who's a fan of Sopranos hasn't seen um, all of his work, I mean, this is a great, great film to watch. Um, if you want to see a great Gandolfini performance. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, I also love, I've, I've, I love the way that Lumet finds ways to show you top down corruption and how people become, um, uh, disincentivized or become cynical working in institutions, getting yeah. involved for the right reasons and how quickly the sort of weight of the institution and the people and, and the people in power can sort of crush uh, your ability to, to maintain those ideals. And uh, I think Andy Garcia is doing a kind of classic Lumet character in, uh, in night falls on Manhattan. Uh, yeah, I, I loved it because I, I love, I hadn't seen it before and I love Lumet's film. So like sitting down and watching a Lumet I hadn't seen about New York corruption felt, uh, you know, you're in the hands of a master. Totally. That's and, what he does. It, 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 he does it so well. And, and, you know, another film uh, of his that is just so fantastic in similar way is the verdict, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, it, I think this film, if you're a fan of the verdict, I think there's a lot of things about this that you'd appreciate. Um, but in terms of New York specifically, I mean, that relationship between, you know, the police, the DA, you know, criminals perceived or otherwise, um, it, it makes me think about 
Um, cause there is that inherent cynicism, right? About like, what's the right thing or, or what is the cost to, you know, getting a conviction or playing the game or, or you're getting someone like Lumet is so good at sort of that, um, moral ambiguity. And it just makes me, I always think about, um, Elliot's, uh, sorry, Alex Gibney's, uh, client nine, the Elliot Spitzer film he made, which I thought was fantastic. And that story kind of always comes to my mind when I see this film because, you know, there is that element in New York about like, oh, another hot shot, you know, DA or attorney general thinks he could change, you know, um, the ways, right? Thinks he can change it from the inside. And I think we've seen that story told a lot of times, but I think in here um, it's it, it's done really well. And I think it's a really effective. I don't know if I'd say uh, a courtroom drama a little bit, but really I think, you know, uh, an exploration of to your point kind of top-down corruption how much did you love richard dreyfus in this movie i loved richard dreyfus in this movie he's um, so great i will say i just i i am just so enamored with ian holmes accent in the movie just, <laughs> just to me, you have to, like do, just just watch a clip like it i would put i would make a bet that he literally in prep for that movie was like, all right, if you want me to play Andy Garcia's dad, I need to sound like Andy Garcia. Like, I just gotta, I gotta, I gotta do the Andy Garcia voice. Um, I'm convinced with no evidence. <laughs> um. um, and so the seven five is the one doc, uh, uh, of the group. And what made you guys pick, uh, the seven five? Yeah. You know, it's actually, this was not intentional in any way. Um, but it's interesting in the context of Night Falls Manhattan because, you know, in that film, you're talking about specific precincts in their relationship to corruption um, in a fictional, but I'm sure it was inspired by real events in some ways. And I think the precincts in that film are actually like the seven something, seven, two, seven, four. Um, oh, there is actually a lot of um, an overlap in a lot of ways. I actually think the seven five is the true story of what was going on at these precincts. Um, in a specific time period, um, in a doc form, whereas Night Falls in Manhattan is obviously like a, a, a dramatization. Um, Seven Fine's a really good doc. Um, it's a recent film. Like what we try to do too is we try to kind of chart um, a little bit of a, a chronological, um, you know, some things that are that are older, um, classic, or you know, like the Queen we talked about, the Discovery, um, and then also try to bring in something more recent, you know, because I think there is power in in having a, a little bit of of different ways in, right? There's sometimes you want to sit down and you're like, man, I, I kind of want to go to this place in time or I want to feel a certain mood, but I might want a newer film or maybe I want a doc or maybe I want something classic and you know, um, more romantic. So that's that's kind of to give you a sense of like why we choose certain things and why why we're able to have a barefoot in the park in the same in the same category as a as a uh, you know king of new york or bring out the dead but yeah uh, i really liked i really like the seven five because i think people don't understand how a cop can be corrupt what it is about the or like what corrupts a cop initially the assumption that every cop joins the force 
or like you're a bad person. And so that's how you become a corrupt cop because you were already bad when you joined the force, but it's actually a, a longer process than that. Something that Lumet documents in a number of his movies, you know, how you become jaded, how you become cynical, how you decide to just be individualistic and want the system to work solely for you and not for the people that you want to protect. And the seven five really depicts a person who uh, is willing to tell that story. I don't know how much self-reflection he has. And if he, when he does have it, it feels like a little put on, but I think that's also part of the point of the movie. These are, these are the kinds of like larger than life characters that I think we associate with um, Mm -hmm. New York, right? It's like even the people who work, I think he talks about in the beginning of the film. It's like, there's two, there was like two routes, right? There was like become a firefighter in that test and become a police officer in that test and the cop test came first like it was just the first test he did right so it's like these are blue collar you know everyday people but they're also larger than life characters and those characters when put into a situation you know whether it's on one side of the law or the other you know that that personality is going to show up and that ego is going to show up and that pride is going to show up so um yeah, I, I think it, I agree that it does do a good job of kind of putting you in the mindset of somebody and like, you know, what their why is and how they kind of make those decisions. Um, but also, I mean, they're, they're going to remake the film. We've been trying to remake the film for, for quite some time, but I think the last I read, it was uh, Ben Stiller that's attached to direct it, weirdly. That's, well, that's uh, cool. I like to escape at Danamora. I like to escape yeah, at Danamora. No, no, it's just, lot, it's just interesting. I wouldn't, you know, I don't know if that would have been, because I think originally it was like a Yon de Monde few people who were like you know um more associated has he made a movie in a long time that would well this was a few years ago off of um the heels of 71 and then i think it was before white boy rick came out um okay oh that that director sorry i'm confusing him with yon de bond who did speed that would be strange (laughs) that would be like why is yon de bond directing the seven five um then again, who knows? Maybe it will be on the bond once. That would be great. So you got your <laughs> Neil Simons, you got your uh, you got your drag ball, you've got your Woody Allen's, you've got your Eddie Burns, you've got your Martin Scorsese, you've got your silent film, black and white silent film about the Lower East Side, uh, and you've got your Ferraras, your Schraders, and your Lumets. It sounds like a pretty full uh section of new york stories it sounds like you've got uh, a lot of bases covered here yeah you know we we, we definitely um feel like we we've got a a cool um selection of, of stuff you know we've got great stuff across the platform all month um yeah we've got great stuff in the neo-noir section you mentioned boxcar bertha we actually have that film um this month september as well um in our on the run uh collection um i love the on the i mean i like all the collections this month coming up but i really love the on the run collection i think you've got you've got something wild in the on the run collection (laughs) um yeah no i mean we've got you know um like you know mind of a murderer um in september um which you know we've got uh um you know california in there um which i love um you know the offense which i don't think a lot of people have seen um Mm -hmm neo-noir which i think overlaps in a really interesting way with new york stories i think i think for people who are diving into new york or you know vice versa with with neo-noir will find even more stuff to kind of play with because as you know a lot of films 
in this section could are neo noirs as well, right? And um, I think for us, you know, stuff like Thief, Blowout, Angel Heart, um, Copland. I mean, films I, I I are definitely near and dear to my heart. Um, yeah, we've got some great stuff coming in. Just to kind of you know cap it on 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 the New York side, um, you know, the the way we're trying to kind of craft this and the way I personally, and I, I would love to hear your perspective is like, I actually really like watching these movies in this contextual way and kind of diving mm-hmm. in there and kind of playing around and being like, all right, like, you know, I love four of these, but I'm not so sure. And like, it kind of gives me that jolt to try them out. Right. Because you're like, well, there's 10 of these things and I like half of them. And what about, you know what I mean? Rather than like, what I hate right now is that there's just such a big, decision that gets put on what to watch and i think it's something that happens when we kind of shifted from um linear to on demand because linear was like you throw it on throw it on yeah throw it on. and there was throw-ons right there was movies where you're like oh it's a throw-on if it's halfway in i'm watching the next half and yeah the only reason that shawshank redemption is considered one of the great movies is because it was a throw-on for 10 years <laughs> everybody everybody threw it on no one actually put it on from the start yeah. you could actually prove that um yeah i mean like i think in in our sort of utopian vision that that people would be actually more inclined to watch more movies because you have these like really easy to navigate um kind of already pre um you know it it kind of i mean this is probably a really pretentious example but it's like if you ever go to a restaurant and they're like look like yeah you could order off menu but like we also have this sort of tasting menu or this approach where it's actually, you know, really easy preferred way to do it. And it gives you a better experience. And I think that's a little bit closer to like what we're trying to do with, with the way that they're kind of laid out and the way that they're programmed. I think that's as good a place as any to uh, wrap things up, Garrett. Uh, uh, Thanks so much for uh, having me on here to talk about uh, some of these amazing movies. Uh, I'm really excited about Curia and especially the New York story section and the on the run and the mind of a murderer. I mean, really all the sections that you guys have going on this month. There's a, there's a number of movies that I haven't seen that I'm looking forward to, uh, to checking out myself. Yeah. And thank you. Uh, This was great, man. I really appreciate it. And, 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 you know, to add to that, you know, um, we've got great stuff this month. Um, You know, I will say that, you know, for people who are interested because of the model, you know, it is, it is monthly. So these things change. And um, if people are interested, they should, they should definitely dive in there and and watch them while they're there. Um, Just to kind of give people some direction, you know, we have our uh, curia.tv is obviously our website where you can sign up, um, you know, access your, your, your free trial if you're a new user for 30 days, you can also watch on there, but we also have our dedicated, um, you know, set top apps. Uh, We've got um, an Apple TV app that, can watch Roku, uh, any Roku device, um, Amazon Fire TV, uh, as well as any Android TV device, and then on the mobile um, for people who enjoy, um, you know, watching on the mobile. Or for me, you know, I, I like kind of adding things to my list on the mobile TV. If I want to like set up kind of what I want to watch. Um, we've got our iOS um, mobile app as well as our Android um, mobile app, and um, you can find um, you know the apps in, in both of those stores. Nice. Uh, well, uh, Garrett Weaver, Chief Content Officer of Curia, thanks so much, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye, guys. Bye.